Hello there, this is Mark Bauerlein with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. Located in the foothills of Wyoming's spectacular Wind River Range, Wyoming Catholic College, an accredited four-year Great Books Institution, is built on the ancient Western tradition of the liberal arts and the freedom of the American West. The college offers its students an immersion in the primary sources of the classical tradition, the grandeur of the mountain wilderness, and the spiritual heritage of the Catholic Church. Students experience the illumination of imagination and intellect through the great books and traditional disciplines, literature and philosophy, mathematics and theology, science and Latin, and an outdoor program second to none. The college celebrated an in-person graduation with its seniors last year and welcomed its largest freshman class ever this year. Learn more about the college's unique space in the world of American higher education at wyomingcatholic.edu. Jay Warner Wallace joins us today. He is a renowned cold case homicide detective. He is also a prolific author. His books including Cold Case Christianity, a homicide detective investigates the claims of the Gospels. He has a new book entitled The Person of Interest, Why Jesus Still Matters in a World that Rejects the Bible. That is our topic today. Welcome, Detective Wallace. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. Uh, first, a question from from uh, an, uh, a layman and an, an ignoramus about these matters, who spent you know much of his life in academia. <laughs> what is the term "person of interest"? Well, you hear it sometimes. There's a very popular TV show now with that name, and yeah. um, and a lot of it was used probably most recently after 9/11 and some of the terrorist um, involvement of the FBI and things like that. It's just, it's a phrase that's often used to talk about somebody who's involved in an investigation. And most of the time, it, it can kind of be used synonymously for potential suspect, you know, somebody who who maybe is uh, in the crosshairs of an investigation, but has not yet, there's not enough evidence yet to determine that he is our suspect. You know, you, you're kind of, you're, you're close. But it's often also used to describe um, a key witness that mm-hmm. you're looking for, a person of interest who might have seen something. I've seen it also used when talking about just anyone involved in a crime as a victim, witness, or otherwise. They're they're trying to identify them, or this is somebody whose actions were important as part of the crime goes. So they're often called persons of interest. Uh, here, what we're doing is using it uh, kind of turning the corner on it, uh, not, not as a potential suspect, but really applying it to Jesus and asking the question, you know, what is the cause of the what we call now call the first century? It clearly wasn't the first century. It wasn't the first century humans lived in, and it wasn't the first century in which we recorded history, but we call it the first century. Why? Is it based on a conquest? Is it based on a person? If so, that person would probably be a person of interest. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's... it's uh... It's a novel approach and a, a, a compelling one. Certainly one wants to, one opens that page and, and wants to keep reading. Let me go back uh, to you a few years ago, uh, referring to your, your previous book. When you first encountered the Gospels, uh, you say, here, here in, in this book, you say you were impressed by the moral teachings of the Gospels, the concern for the poor, uh, the call to love and sacrifice, but also you say, quote, I didn't think any of it was true. Were, were you were you an atheist there, or you just it just didn't really mean anything significant to you at that time? 
No, I was a very committed um, atheist. I would have said there's no reason for us to believe any of these uh, supernatural stories about deity. Um, and I wasn't somebody who was raised around a lot of Christians, uh, even as friends, you know, and certainly as co-workers. I had a couple on my agency. I, I work as a detective and I just worked cold case homicides toward the end of my career. But in the beginning, I had access to a couple of guys in patrol and, and these guys were Christians. But when you asked them why Christianity was true, they really kind of struggled to give you, you know, it's, it's, they've experienced something, they had uh, encountered uh, Jesus in some way. And I thought, well, you know, everyone says that about somebody, you know, that what's, that what separates this from Islam or from Baha'i believers, or, you know, everyone's got some religious experience they think as is proof that their system is true. And so I just kind of, you know, tossed it aside as nonsense, uh, kind of the same wishful thinking. But again, you could learn something important, even from fictional characters. And I was willing to uh, examine the, the what what Jesus had to say, um, just as a fictional character, I didn't. Yeah. He doesn't have to be. You know, you can learn something from I don't know. Um, you think of who somebody who's formative um, on on the pages of, of of fiction or on on movies. You know, wise sayings of the Jedi Master. You know, <laughs> that doesn't mean it's true. Yeah. Um, so in the end, I was just interested in what was so. I had a pastor. You know, we had never been to an evangelical church, but my wife decided we should go because we're starting to raise kids and. I think she was kind of curious to, you know, what should we raise our kids with some kind of a structured belief system? And I thought, no, I mean, I, I, I wasn't raised that way. But if you want to go, I will be happy to go uh, just as a way of expressing my devotion to my wife. Yeah. So I so I went and this pastor, the first time we were there, he, he described Jesus as the smartest man who ever lived. And that claim stuck with me. It bothered me. Um, but I wanted to see, look, even if he's not, look, there's fortune wisdom cookie sometimes, I mean, fortune, fortune cookie wisdom sometimes, right? Where you say, okay, it's a fortune cookie. It doesn't have to be true, but yeah, I agree with that statement. I can see applying that statement and it might have some power. So I thought, okay, I'll look and see what Jesus has to say. And that's how the whole thing started for me. It was really examining Jesus's uh, claims that were supposed to be smart according to this pastor. You, you say in the book that you spent the next six months, quote, trying to determine if the Gospels were anything more than irrelevant fiction. Uh, broadly speaking, then, what were your methods? What, 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 were the, what were the techniques of inquiry? Well, you know, a lot of times when you're working in a crime scene, you're doing both inside and outside approaches. Uh, one, one from inside the crime scene where you're just looking at, like, we've got some data here, we have some evidence in the crime scene, we have a body, we have some blood evidence, we have some, maybe a weapon is still there or marks from a weapon, some blood spatter, all those things are in the crime scene. And so you spend some time, uh, as soon as you get there, you spend time just going through all of that with a fine-tooth comb. And then, of course, you have stuff that's outside the crime scene, you know, witnesses and background stuff and all the stuff you're going to do, behaviors of particular potential suspects after the crime, before the crime. These are the kinds of things you look at that are outside the, the crime scene. And I took that approach with the Gospels. You know, I wanted to, to examine the Gospels uh, from an inside and outside perspective. You know, what what are the markers inside the text that might give me clues if this was actually true? How does this and then what's what's outside the text that would either confirm the claims of the text or 
would would give me some other reason to believe that Jesus was more than just either a fictional character or just another guy. And so I was looking at both inside and outside the crime scene. Really, the book that, for me, describes my inside the crime scene of view, that is called Cold Case Christianity. And there, we're really just looking at, like, what are the markers of reliable eyewitness testimony? And do the gospel authors display those markers? But with this book, we're doing just the opposite. We're looking at the stuff that's outside the crime scene. Imagine that there was no New Testament. Imagine if every single New Testament had been utterly destroyed. Could we assemble the case for Jesus from outside the crime scene of the New Testament? And this is what you often do in no-body murders, you know, where you have somebody Hmm. who kills somebody and they get rid of the body, and then you don't have any reason to believe they're even a murder for a number of years. You know, maybe they just ran off. You can't find a body. We had one of these recently this year, but they did find the body of the young lady who was allegedly just missing. Well, that changes things, you know. But if you don't have a body, you got to do it a different way. Let me say that in the book, there is sort of a parallel investigation going on. You are going into Jesus, uh, that person of interest. What is the other contemporary case that you are following? Yeah, and I've worked a couple of these, a few of these, but I, I never want to name them. So I've changed the names of some of the players, and I've kind of mixed some of the details. A, a nobody murder, and I've done a number of these where you don't have any reason at first to believe it's a murder. So they take the case, they take the report as a missing persons report. And you're thinking, okay, it's a missing persons, no big deal. Uh, she'll come back tomorrow, I'm sure. And a week later, you know, you can follow up, and no, she's not back home. But I've had p- p- people who were so persuasive, the murderer was so persuasive, that he persuades her family that she's just run off. And I had a case where 30 years went by. I never got a single call from a family member in those entire 30 years asking us to reopen the case or even looked at, did anybody ever look to see if my daughter, you know? No, they believed their son-in-law so deeply that they did not call us. And mm. so we didn't pursue it. Uh, we figured, hey, the family knows her better than we do. But no, at some point we said we're opening the case as a homicide, and we eventually uh, make a case, and here's how you do it in front of a jury. You tell the jury, look, I've got nothing in the crime scene because they never took it as a murder, and they never photographed anything, and no bodies ever turned up. So now we have no pictures of a crime scene, no evidence. There's not a single piece of property booked into the property room under this uh, uh, report number. So, So we have nothing in the crime scene. But if she was murdered on the day she went missing, well, that was an explosive, um, like a bomb went off, an angry bomb went off. But bombs are always preceded by a fuse, and afterwards there's you know, shrapnel and debris all over the place when the bomb explodes. So we're going to show you, um, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, what happened on the day she went missing by simply tracing the fuse and the fallout. Yeah. Well, same approach I'm taking in the book. I, I do a case where we're, we trace the fuse and fallout of a no-body murder. Um, and then we also apply the same approach to Jesus of Nazareth as if there's no New Testament. We, we, we look at just the fuse and fallout of history to see if we can reconstruct what happens in the first century. And, well, first let me say that your reconstruction of the contemporary case is, well— Let's just say that the reader is in a state of suspense because as you move through that case and you then intersperse it, you, you go back and forth between Jesus and this more contemporary investigation. Uh, you really want to know what's going to happen because you get a little discovery, you find a new witness, you go back to an old witness who tells you things that, wow, you didn't say anything about this 
many, many years ago, and you've been wanting to... Anyway, I, I, I don't want to spoil that for readers uh, on that, but when you talk about the fuse fallout factor, the real issue that you're identifying there is precisely the timing, the historical timing of Jesus's appearance in world history. And what do you conclude when you ask that question? Well, have you ever, like, I'm, I'm, I get people ask, well, I'm on college campuses a lot, and so people will ask, well, why did Jesus come when he came? Why couldn't he have come earlier? Why couldn't he have come later? Why wouldn't he come now when you've got all this social media and, and you can do YouTube videos and reach the entire world in five minutes, you know? These kinds of questions are often asked by by skeptics and by young investigators, you know, young people who want to know um, how this how this could be. And so you, you'll get these kinds of questions all the time on college campuses. Now, what's interesting is, is you can actually trace the fuse of history leading up to the appearance of Jesus. And you can determine something about why God would do something in the fullness of time, as Paul says in Galatians, right? That Jesus comes in the fullness of time. What does that even mean? Like, what is it about history that is so perfectly aligned to have a window of opportunity that eventually causes the appearance of Jesus to change all of history? And I think you look at it, and I, there's, there's a prophetic fuse, there's a cultural fuse, and, one, and there's a, a, a spiritual fuse. But I will just tell you that you'll see in the book, there's over 400 illustrations. It's, a, it's really a graphic novel in a sense. And I wanted it to be that way because, I, I'm, actually, I learned a lot from doing uh, kids' books. We did three kids' books, and those kids' books are about 50-50 text-to-image ratio. Well, it, it kind of scratches a niche that I have as a creative that I want to see and, and I can tell you that jurors are far more likely to understand a concept, especially like difficult relationships between evidence, if they can see it. They want to see the connectivity. They, so this is a book that's like a kid's book for adults in the sense that we're diving into these deep issues, but we're doing it visually. And if you see that that calendar, that, that fuse burning toward the first century and see when these events occur, like, like I actually charted out the prophecies from the Old Testament as not so much in terms of like the categories they fall into. Oh, this is about his birth. This is about his life. This is about his death on the cross. But instead, I put them in chronological order so you can see when the prophecies actually occur in the timeline. And I do that because if you look at that, you'll see, oh, yeah, you know, to be honest, you don't have complete answers to the, you know, there's six investigative questions we ask, you know, the what, why, how, when, where, and then that gives you a who when you're working investigations. Well, you don't get the five other questions, the what, when, how, why, where, answered until you get right about to the end of the Old Testament. So there's a reason why there's no additional prophecy after that and why Jesus then appears in the timeline, because now you have enough data. And if you see how it unwraps and see, yeah, if, if Jesus was to come at this century, there wouldn't be enough data to be able to use prophecy as effectively as the New Testament authors do. But they're able to do it because we wait in that timeline until those first five questions are answered. And now you're ready for question six, which is the who question. So this is the kind of stuff that I thought was powerful as I looked at history and realized that even the history of empires was such that until the Roman Empire arrives and you have the technology of writing, you have not only an alphabet, the Etruscan alphabet, which is now available all over the empire, but you also have the technology of papyrus. You have this Greek spoken language. You even have now roads and bridges and tunnels and a postal service in place. And you've even got a 200 year period of peace called the Pax Romana that Paul is actually operating in the middle of 
when he is walking those roads, which are now available to him, to spread the gospel to others. So there is definitely a time frame in, in which Jesus arrives that I, I, if you have to see this one chapter to see what I call the red zone, and that is that little area of opportunity in which Jesus arrives to make the biggest possible impact. Let's pause for a moment to ask if you are looking for a Catholic university where the greatest works of Western and Catholic tradition are the foundation for learning, all in an environment that is faithful to the magisterium. That's the University of Dallas in Irving, Texas. Recommended by the Cardinal Newman Society, the university offers an exceptional liberal arts education with undergraduate and graduate programs in arts and sciences, business, and ministry, as well as a campus in Rome, Italy all of them preserving the wisdom of the past while preparing students for world-changing futures. Academically excellent, always faithful. Apply today at udallas.edu. At one point, you compare Jesus to other ancient deities, uh, such as Dionysus. Uh, mm -hmm. what, do you, what, what are you looking for there, and what conclusion do you draw? Well, I mean, you know that a lot of people will claim that Jesus is not even a real real character, that he's a fictional reconstruction of other mythologies, all of which have the same kind of motif of, of dying and rising. Um, and so, I, you know, people make those claims because they see things that are similar. And so I just did a kind of straightforward several um, loops of researching the mythologies. All kinds of mythologies from Persian, Egyptian, Greek, but you know, all over the even North America, uh, South American, uh, Aztecian uh, kind of um, mythologies, and and you'll just, you'll discover that even when these people groups have no way to connect with each other, there are similarities that occur that exist between even separated people groups when they think about their mythologies, they think about them in similar ways, and there are actually fifteen common expectations of deity that are always revisited in one way or another in the ancient mythologies. Not every myth is going to have all 15. As a matter of fact, I don't see really a single myth that has more than about 10. And there are different 10, depending on the myth. And there's not a single myth that I see that has less than about six. So somewhere between that six and 10 of the larger group of 15 expectations. And they're simple. There are things like, you know, the, the, the mythology is going to, uh, the, the God is going to appear in uh, history at some point in a unnatural or supernatural or unexpected way. And that way is very different depending on the myth. But many of these appear uh, in an unexpected, supernatural way. You know, Jesus does that too. Um, but many of them can offer eternal life. Many of them um, live beyond the grave. Many of, all of them, as a matter of fact, can can do miracles. Like these are the things you would like, like no duh. I mean, if we're thinking about God and we think there is a God, we're going to think, well, what would God's traits be? Then you're going to see common expectations regardless of people group, even moderns. But ancients definitely had this. But what's interesting is none of the mythologies actually embody all 15 global expectations of deity until you get to Jesus of Nazareth. And he is the one character that embodies all 15. And that's interesting to me because it, it seems to me that's part of coming in the fullness of time. If you're going to arrive at a time when the most people are out there worshiping their mythologies in an empire that for the most part was religiously tolerant of all of those mythologies and allowed you to worship them, so that when someone comes and actually meets more robustly every expectation that's out there, you would actually think, oh, this might, might be the real deal. Now, to keep that in mind, as you go back and reread uh, the book of Acts in Acts 17, when Paul is speaking to the people on Mars Hill. 
He says, you people are really religious. You worship everything. You worship all kinds of things. You even have a tomb here to the unknown God. So, so he sees these monuments and he recognizes that I'm going to show you who the real God is now. Not the one that you imagined, but the one who we actually saw with our eyes. And he even uses poetry from the time to illustrate the fact that there are these common expectations. And, and so now Jesus comes and he arrives. And anytime the expected meets the expectations of the expector, you get a really good result. And that's what uh, I think one of the reasons why you see Christianity explode in the first century. Uh, let me come back to the to the opening point for a second. Your your approach. You are looking at this as as a detective, looking at this. You, you've identified a person of interest, and it's not as if you have you have an ordained conclusion, and you're just trying to grab this evidence and that evidence to build up the case. You are saying, okay, I have this person of interest. Are there these other factors, the other elements, the, these these things going on outside the the immediate the immediate context of that person, and you're letting you're letting these external factors really come come together to build the case. It's almost as if uh, okay, you've selected these things, but they're really making the argument themselves. That that would be the that would be the proper way to look at this kind of investigation. Yes. Well, yeah, absolutely. So what happened, I'm only, it's kind of like when you have a case where, where the, the, the only person who says what happened that night is the husband. And so you have to go on what the husband says happened. He says there was an argument and she took off, but he's a person of interest because you're wondering if that's even true. Well, this is what, how Jesus was first presented to me as a person of interest. This pastor says, this is the smartest man who ever lived. And I'm like, oh, that, that, there's a lot of people who have lived, okay? To argue that this dude is the smartest, why would he even say that? And that's what started me thinking, well, is he really the person of interest that this pastor said? Now, I was not out like my friend Lee Strobel, whose wife, Leslie, I got saved before he did. You know, he wrote the case for Christ, and he was really out to prove her wrong. That was not—no, my wife was not a Christian. We didn't become Christians until we were together for about 18 years. And, and so it wasn't a matter of trying to—it was just—it was pretty neutral in the sense that I'm not upset about it. I, I will tell you that if you talk to people who knew me, they would say I was a very pessimistic atheist. I was very um, impatient with believers, and that's true, um, because the believers I would encounter were either— people who didn't seem like they thought deeply about what they believed. And then we had a bunch of folks we took to jail who would say that they were believers, and I had no patience for that kind of thing. Um, so yeah, I was pretty cocky uh, in my position as a non-believer, but it wasn't like I was um, trying to disprove Jesus. I didn't think he was really worth my time either one way or the other. What persuaded me that he was worth my time was the stuff we're talking about today. It was doing this just to see like what leads up to Jesus, what follows Jesus. I think most people don't have any clue about that history on either side of the explosion. And, and we aren't taught this in school. And our young people certainly aren't taught it. And so a lot of the things I'm trying to do in this book are to show you, here's what the evidence is. And this is how the evidence answers common objections. Is Christianity anti-science? Is Jesus a copycat savior? Um, do the do the Old Testament prophecies really have they been distorted by the uh, gospel authors to make a case for Jesus? These are things you hear all the time on college campuses, and I just want to be able to, and you know, kind of answer those objections as we go. But at the time, it wasn't like I was trying to answer those. I was just collecting data, and then we asked juries to make the most reasonable inference from the ten weeks of data that we call evidence. It's the evidence set, you know. Yeah. Well, you go into the the Old Testament 
prophets, uh, Moses, Joshua, you talk about Joseph, David, Elisha, and Jonah. And you note how many uh, traits they share with Jesus. What, what, what do you draw from that? Well, it's not just like, you know, you can find 17 traits in the, uh, in the mythologies that are also uh, similar to the, the, the nature of Jesus, but you can find even more traits in the archetypes of the um, Old Testament patriarchs, um, who, if you were just to kind of strip out, this is often done, for example, with the mythologies. They'll find like five or six similarities to Jesus, and they'll state them in such a way that it really sounds like Jesus, when in fact, of course, it's not. But uh, th those similarities are not nearly as close to Jesus as the similarities of the types that precede Jesus. So the question then becomes, and I have a list of all these in the book, right? You can see them on one chart where you see here's what, here's a description of Moses that if you look at it, you're like, oh, that kind of sounds like Jesus. Here's a description of Jonah, kind of sounds like Jesus. You can do this a number of times. Um, but what I was trying to, the point I'm trying to make is, is that this is how God works, as he, he appears in history then, meeting the ancient expectations of non-Jews and following as a, as a you know, the, the foreshadowing of the Jewish patriarchs. So that no one has an excuse when Jesus gets here as a, hey, you should pay attention to this guy. He's a person of interest because it turns out he meets your expectations in one way or the other. And the, if you just took the similarities, you know, the, uh, the descriptions of Jonah and Moses that seem similar to Jesus and then take the 17 attributes and you made a list of all of those attributes, you'd swear you're talking about Jesus. But in the end, Jesus meets our expectations. It's as C.S. Lewis uses the word myth not to mean falsehood, he means um, a, a story about God, a, a narrative about deity. And so he would say that the, uh, the mythologies of the pagans are basically the myths from the minds of men and poets, whereas Jesus is the myth from the mind of God grounded in what we call real things. So you have two notions about deity, but one actually comes from deity. And so therefore, it just happens to embody all the expectations of the others. And that's what you see in Jesus. Yeah. And, and interesting, uh, another interesting element in the book is the way in which you look at the prophets somewhat in the same way a detective would look at informants. Uh, what, what does that lead to? In, well, in, in your in your discussion, yeah, I, I mean, I, if you're going to just play devil's advocate, and I often take worst case scenarios in all my cases, where you're going to tell a jury, hey, look, even if the defense is right about X, Y, or Z, you still have enough uh, reason to convict this guy. So if you want to take out the things that the defense team says you should take him out, take him out. You're still going to find enough evidence to convict. So you're playing this worst case scenario kind of a thing. So I did the same thing with the prophets. If you said, okay, there's a bunch of prophets who say something that's messianic. But there are some of these prophets have also made predictions about historical events, and those historical events actually came true. So if you wanted to only, and now that's, we call those reliable informants because a reliable informant in a courtroom is just somebody who we, has already offered one piece of information in the past that we know uh, was, was legitimate because it came, you know, we, it, was, it was confirmed in some way. If he says, you know, I, I, uh, uh, Jim Jones is, is doing burglaries, uh, and then you end up watching Jim Jones, and he's doing burglaries. Well, now that guy's a reliable informant for the next piece of data he's going to give you. Well, in the same way, if you looked at the um, authors of of the um, uh, prophecies of the Old Testament, well, some have made accurate predictions about history. So I would give them a higher status. They've already proven themselves, right? So why wouldn't you trust them for what they say about Jesus, about the Messiah? 
So if you play the worst case scenario and said, I'm only willing to consider reliable informants, I'm going to toss out all the prophets who never said anything about history. Well, you'd still be stuck with um, data that would point to Jesus. You, and this would be even, I think, more reliable in the sense that you could say, well, look, they were right about history. Why wouldn't you think they're right about Jesus? So that's the kind of approach I take in defining what's a reliable informant. And in a similar way, there's cloaked and there's clear evidence in crime scenes. Some evidence points clearly to somebody before you ever meet them because it's like a fingerprint. And if you've got a fingerprint database, you can actually know who your suspect is from the crime scene fingerprint before you ever knock on his door. So that kind of clear evidence tells you who your suspect is from the onset. But if you found like a button torn off a shirt and you're not sure if that button was even part of the crime scene, for all you know, it was there earlier. And maybe it came off something from the victim and maybe who knows how it got there. But then you go knock on that guy's door and he's got a button missing from his shirt. Well, that cloaked piece of evidence, that thing you weren't even sure was evidence to begin with, ends up being an important piece of evidence because it identifies the guy, not from the onset, but in hindsight. Well, prophecy is the same way. Some prophecy is so clear that even Jews today say that's messianic prophecy. Other uh, prophecies are only clear after the fact, after you've already identified who the suspect is. Well, then you can match the prophecy and say, well, yeah, that actually describes him. So, so I think both are fair. You still collect buttons, even they're not as clear as the fingerprint. But in the end, you would not deny using the button in trial. Of course you would use it. And this is what the New Testament authors are often doing and why they're not distorting. They're just using the cloaked evidence along with the clear evidence. Uh, we, we spoke a few minutes ago about the salient elements of the fuse uh, before Jesus, um, the, the elements of the Roman Empire, say, or the, the alphabet. Uh, what are the important elements of the fallout of Jesus? What, what happens after the crucifixion? So, so I was a guy who was in the arts before I became a detective. So my, my dad was a detective, so I just followed in his footsteps. But, but I have a bachelor's degree in design and a master's degree in architecture before I, I was working as an architect when I, when I came over to law enforcement. And so the things I would have said were important to me as an atheist, because I was still an atheist when I started the job, um, would have been, you know, literature, art, music, education, and science. Those are the things I would have said all of us should be interested in. And it turns out those five things, for example, plus really spirituality on a general level, even the world religions that aren't Christian, all of these things have been so deeply impacted by Jesus and his followers that it's hard to deny who Jesus is, given that there is no other example of any fictional character or any human who's had this kind of impact in those areas. He's impacted a lot more, but I'm only picking the areas from which I can reconstruct the story of Jesus. So let's say, for example, go back to our original idea. No New Testaments, they have all been destroyed. All the New Testaments have been destroyed, so now all you have left is the fuse and fallout. Well, you can reconstruct the story of Jesus from the millions of people who have written about Jesus after the fact in key aspects of culture that you guys all think are important if you're not a believer. That was me. I thought those were important areas. For example, in sciences alone, the founders and fathers of the modern scientific disciplines, the vast, vast, vast majority of them were Christ followers. We don't realize this, but the entire scientific revolution, for the most part, came out of the three universities and their daughter universities that were founded by Christ followers in Bologna, Paris, and Oxford, and then about 24 that were the daughter universities of those three. 
And from those other universities, all these scientists emerged that are the founders of modern chemistry and modern biology and modern astronomy, all the way down to quantum physics and computer sciences. Well, if you look at that list, and I've got a list in the book so you can see what I'm talking about, those are called the science fathers because either they're a girl or a guy, they are called the founders, fathers, mothers of certain disciplines. Well, it turns out they also wrote a lot about Jesus. And if you just read the personal journals and letters and books, many of them wrote books about Jesus, you will see that you can reconstruct the story of Jesus in even more detail from the science fathers than you can from the church fathers. And I have a, a list of all of the data you can recover from the writings of scientists. Now, I want you to think about that. There is no historical figure in the history of historical figures for whom you can reconnect his, remember the public ministry of Jesus is just those three years and every detail of that public ministry can be reconstructed in literature, art, music, education, science, and the rough outline in world religions that aren't Christian. Now ask yourself this question. Is there any other fictional character that's had this kind of impact? By the way, Jesus catalyzes, and I give in the book, seven reasons why Jesus and the worldview he inaugurates catalyzes the sciences. We have the sciences. This didn't happen under Buddhism. It didn't happen under any other world religion. It happened amongst Christians in the scientific revolution. Why? There's a catalyst reason for that. Same thing is true for education. There's like six reasons why Christians were the founders of modern education as we know it, why more modern universities have been founded by Christians than all other groups combined. So the question is, which fictional character has ever had this kind of impact? None, you won't find a parallel. And that's why it's reasonable to infer that Jesus is not a fictional character. But then ask yourself, well, which mortal human has had this kind of impact and can have his story reconstructed from the impact, you won't find an example there either. So now you've got good reason to think he's something more than a mortal human. This is why this kind of investigation does give you evidence of the historicity and deity of Jesus in a way that's kind of sitting there in plain sight, but it's but no one's looking for it. And that's a lot of what we do in cold case murders. You know, that there was a team who worked this 30 years ago and they didn't solve it. Now we come along 30 years later, well, we're not any smarter than those guys. We're just looking in different places. And that's what we're doing with this kind of an investigation. The book is Person of Interest, Why Jesus Still Matters in a World That Rejects the Bible. Detective Wallace, thank you for joining us. Hey, thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930.